with you this morning. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5 in just a few moments. And we encourage you to get your Bibles and join with us. We have many guests this morning, and we're so thankful. You carved out a little bit of time, not for us, but for God. God who's blessed you, to God who forgives you, to God who watches over you, and how important it is that we honor him and worship him as he so desires. It's good to be back with you once again. I haven't been up here in a few weeks, and someone asked me if I forgot how to preach, and I thought, no, I don't think I'll ever forget that. But I'm glad to be with you once again to come and study and encourage each other from Word of God. This evening, Jason and I are going to go back to one of our, what we call our chair series. We'll move this pulpit out of the way. We'll have a couple chairs up here. And in the conversational setting, we're going to talk about some very important topics. We're going to do this for several Sunday nights. If you've never been with us on that, we really encourage you to come. Our theme is going to be, I know the Bible says, but. And that but is what gets a lot of us in trouble. I know what the Bible says, but what about this? And so we're going to just walk through some very, very important topics. We encourage you to come and be with us as we look at some of these things together. You know, every story has a beginning. Fairy tales begin with this little expression, once upon a time, and off it goes. Even our Bible begins with that idea. Our Bible begins with, in the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. And when we meet somebody for the first time, one of the first things we want to know is, what's your story? Where are you from? What's your background? When you read biographies, they always take you to the beginning of this person's life. You read a biography about Abraham Lincoln. It's going to tell you he was born in Kentucky and raised in Indiana. That is his background. Sometimes when couples are together, they'll say, well, how did you meet? What's the background of that? Even this past week, somebody asked me, how did you get into preaching? We all have a beginning. What we want to look at this morning is how Jesus chose the apostles. And in Luke chapter 5, we find a fascinating story about that. A lot of times we don't give a lot of thought to that. How did he choose who he chose? How did he pick these men? First of all, we know it wasn't like our days today. He didn't have a big job fair. He didn't interview people. He didn't say, submit your resumes. Be sure you put in some contact information because I'm going to check you all out. Jesus didn't do any of those things. There was no HR department. Jesus chose them by their hearts. And what we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 5 is how Jesus actually did this. The story takes place in Galilee. Galilee is a region, but it's connected to the Sea of Galilee. And I was there a few weeks ago at the Sea of Galilee. Got to take a boat ride on that very sea. How fascinating that is. And when we hear the word sea, we think of a big, big body of water. We think of something like Lake Michigan, which is huge. In fact, in the northern part where the story takes place, you can see from one side to the other side. And 70% of Jesus' ministry took place on the northern side of Galilee. It's going to be here where we see this big catch of fish. It's going to be here where he storms the sea, calms the sea, and, and does those things. It's going to be here where we see the, the demons go to the pigs, and they rush into the water, and they all drown. So many miracles, so many teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, so many things take place on this northern section of the Sea of Galilee. There's two towns nearby. 
One's Capernaum, and that was the town of Peter. And then there's a town of Bethsaida. And the name Bethsaida means a village of fishing. And so this was the fishing community. And so when we begin Luke chapter 5, we find Peter, James, and John, they're fishing. They're fishing because that's their livelihood. Now today in our setting, we say, what's your hobby? And someone may say, well, I golf. I fish. These folks didn't fish for a hobby. They fished for food. They fished because that was their income. On a free Saturday, you wouldn't find them out there fishing because that's what they did to make a living. So let's read the text now, Luke chapter 5. And we're going to find some fascinating things as Jesus chose his first disciples here. It says, Now it came about while the multitudes were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake Gennesaret. That's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and they were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. He sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the land. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water. Let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night. We caught nothing. But at your bidding, I will let down the nets. Verse 6 says, When he had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. They signaled to their partners in the other boat, for they came to them to help. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement has seized, seized him and his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And also it was James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you'll be catching men. And when they brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. And that began their life occupation of becoming apostles as Jesus had for them to do. I want you to notice in, in verse 4 and verse 5, we find an interesting exchange of words here. Jesus promises three things. First of all, he tells them they're fishing the water. They would have known that. I mean, that's why they had been fishing all night. They know there's fish in the water, but Jesus tells them there's fish there. What Jesus also tells them is that they are in the deep and you're going to catch them. Cast out into the deep, he says, lower your nets and you will catch them. To which Peter replied, first of all, we have worked hard. The ESB says we have toiled. We busted it. It wasn't like we threw out something a couple times and said, ah, let's just, let's just stay out here and catch some rays. There's no fish today. We worked hard, he says. Not only that, we worked a long time. We worked all night. And we got nothing. That meant they're going home empty. That meant no payday for them. That meant nothing for their families. And what we see from this is three contrasts that comes from this. Number one, they were worn out because they had worked hard. Number two, they were discouraged because they caught nothing. And number three, they were getting nowhere. What are we going to do now? Are we going to go back out tomorrow? We didn't catch any fish today. And I think these three expressions, worn out, discouraged, getting nowhere, describes a season that a lot of folks are in. We've been to hospitals. We've been to nursing homes. We've been to funeral homes. 
And sometimes we feel like that is our life story. And what we see is few words can well describe the very situation that they were in. But in verse 5, Peter says something that's really interesting. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding I will let down the nets. Other translations say, at your word I will let down my nets. King James Version says, nevertheless. Nevertheless. Nevertheless is kind of an expression that kind of drags your feet. I mean, can you imagine going to a wedding and the preacher says to the groom, do you take this woman to be your wife? Nevertheless, I do. I mean, right there, the bride's father gets up and says, time out. We're ending this thing right now. Nevertheless means I'll do it, but, but I'm kind of reluctant. But what we find in this is that Peter's not arguing. Peter's not saying, Lord, I'm not going to go. You are a carpenter. You know wood. I'm a fisherman, and I know this lake. I live around this lake. This lake has provided me income. You don't know what you're talking about. But at thy will, I will do it. It is a moment of trust. It is a moment of submission. I will do it because you say so. And I want you to understand how many times that sometimes we come across things in our Bible, powerful statements, but we want to argue with God. It just won't work, God, is what we think about. We won't trust him. We won't submit to him because we simply don't think it's going to work. God has answers in the Bible, but, you know, Lord, we worked hard. We worked all night. It simply won't work. God says, here's what's going to help your marriage. Forgive each other. Commit to each other. But we think it simply won't work. God tells us how to be strong and face our giants. But we say, you know, Lord, it simply won't work. And what we do with all these things is, unlike Peter, we don't go. And so this morning, I want to share three simple lessons here that ought to remind us of how important it is to listen to Jesus. Number one, the Lord knows what we do not. The Lord knows what we do not. Notice the transition in this simple setting here. It began in verse 5 where Peter calls Jesus master. But by verse 8, he calls him Lord, falling at his feet, confessing that he is a sinful man. Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. He saw with that very statement, Jesus knew something we didn't know. We've been out there all night long fishing. We got nothing. He tells us to go out there right now, and we got more fish than we've ever got in our lifetime. God knows something. God knows things that we do not know. And so we look at some passages, such as Psalms 119, that really expresses this. It says, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I observe your precepts. Look at this, wiser, more insight. I understand more than my enemies, than my teachers, than older folks. How do I do this? It's from the word of God. God knows. And that's what we see here. Psalms 119 says it this way. Moreover, by them thy servants ward, and keeping them there is great reward. Keeping them is keeping the word of God. And so we begin with the understanding that God knows more than we do. And so we look at some applications. God knows dangers that we are not aware of. 
Oh, there's no problem with this. I can do this. God knows some things that you don't know. God knows how dangerous things are. God knows how temptation works. God knows how we need to be serious about our purity and not flirt with the devil and not play around with the world. God knows those things. And sometimes we simply don't take God seriously. Peter says, nevertheless, Lord, I know fishing, Jesus. I'm, this is my livelihood. You are in my wheelhouse, Jesus. Nevertheless, I will do this. He understood that. We also see and appreciate that God knows how we can be strong. Let's spend a couple of verses on this, if you will. Turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. God knows how we can be strong spiritually. And when we're strong spiritually, we have confidence. And when we have confidence, we can face any enemy and any giant, whether it's a health issue, whether it's toxic co-workers, whether it's just discouragement in life. When we are strong, we can face these things. How do we get strong? God knows how. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. God knows. Over in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, that wonderful little section about the armor of God. It says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take on the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, verse 17 says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. God knows how to be strong. And when you look at it practically, it means spending time in this book. It means attending services. It means coming to Bible class. Well, I don't need to come to Bible class, Brother Shiles. I, I, I've, I've been a Christian for 45 years. I know this stuff. Nevertheless, I will. Peter knew water, didn't he? Peter knew fish, didn't he? But Jesus told him something he didn't know. And so when we get this idea, I don't need to come Sunday nights. I don't need to come Wednesday nights. I really don't need to spend much time in there because I've already read it well, at least once in my life. And I only read a book one time, and that's all I ever read it. God knows how you can be strong. God knows how you can overcome worry. God knows how you can overcome discouragement. And you do all that be being strong. We argue with God rather than we say, nevertheless, I will. Maybe I don't see it fully. Maybe I don't appreciate it fully, but nevertheless, I will. Thirdly, along this line, God knows the value of fellowship. Our togetherness is so important, and God sees that. We sing the song, blessed be the tie that binds our hearts. We know that spiritually now. After a year being at home, 
being away from each other, it's not the same thing as right now, is it? It's not the same thing as seeing eye to eye. It's not the same thing as seeing smiles. It's not the same thing as hugs and handshakes because God knows the value of fellowship. Alone, the devil gets us. Alone, we get discouraged. Alone, we can't make it. Now, again, sometimes we argue with God about that. I think I'm doing pretty good, God. I really don't need the church. I don't need to be in a fellowship, we say. God knows. You get that? Peter, get out there into the deep and lower your nets, and you're going to catch some fish. Number two, simple lessons. The Lord sees what we cannot see. And again, we, we see this in this wonderful lesson here. We often see problems. We often see trouble. We often see trials. But the Lord sees what we cannot see. The Lord sees what doctors cannot see. The Lord sees what forecasters cannot see. And the reason is because, number one, God sees into tomorrow. None of us can see tomorrow. God does. God sees into eternity, and none of us can do that. And God can see into our hearts. That's why the Lord picked those apostles. He looked into their hearts. He knew who they were. He knew what they could be. And the Lord sees what we cannot see. And one of the things the Lord sees, he sees our tears. I love how the psalmist puts this in Psalms 56. Thou hast taken account of my wonderings, put my tears in thy bottle, are they not all in thy book? Again, the idea that God is aware of these things. God hears our prayers, and God knows the good that we do. Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, it talks about giving a cup of cold water in the name of the Lord. His reward will not be lost because heaven is aware of such things. God sees what we cannot see. Peter, tired, I don't know when the last time you stayed up all night. Most of us only do that if we have a sick child. But stayed up all night working. We used to call that the night shift or the third shift. He'd been out there all night fishing. Now it's daytime. Now he's mending his nets. And probably in his mind is, I'm going to go home and catch a few Z's. I don't know how I'm going to sleep because I wasted the whole day. I didn't get anything to bring to my family. I have no money. I have no fish. And here's Jesus saying, turn around, go back out there. There are fish you didn't see, but I see. There's things you don't know, but I know. And again, when we start putting this in our lives, how valuable that is. We sometimes want to know everything. You know, if you don't know it, just get out your phone and get on Google. There's the answer, we think. We know everything, but there's so many things we don't know. And God does. And what a valuable lesson that is. And then thirdly, as we think about this, this idea of this lesson, we need to see that the Lord helps us to greater things. You see, Peter, James, and John, they had the catch of a lifetime. The text tells us not only did it fill both boats, both boats began to sink. They had so many fish. What they would do is they'd take it back into the town there, and they'd probably be salted. They'd be sent on to Rome. This is a windfall for them. This is a big financial move for them. This is great. And, and what the Lord didn't do, he didn't say, now, we're going to do this again tomorrow, and then tomorrow, and stay with me, and you'll be millionaires. No. I did this for one reason. Because I got something more important than fishing for you. 
you've got to do some things for me. And what he had in mind was two things. First of all, that they would go into all the world. There are places they would travel that they'd never, ever traveled to. It's said that Peter and Paul went to Rome. I doubt they ever went to Rome on their own. It is said that Thomas preached as far as India. I doubt he would ever go to India. These were Jews. They primarily stayed right there in Galilee and in Jerusalem area. That's where they lived and that's where they stayed. But the Lord had bigger intentions for them. And what they would do is they become preachers of righteousness. We're done with fish. We're done with nets. We got something more important to do. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this helps us and this reminds us as we think about this, that Jesus proved that he was Lord. Where did all those fish come from? I think it was a miracle. Lord caused those fish to be there. He caused those fish to go into their nets. The Lord was proving that he is God on heaven and earth. And Jesus demonstrated that he cared. I mean, you think about these guys in the boats. Jesus could have said, now watch, watch. And here rises a hot air balloon. And they could have said, wow. But what good is a hot air balloon? Or he could have said, watch this, watch this. And a whole group of donkeys and elephants and zebras would walk across that water. Never seen anything like that. Man, that's fantastic. But what good was that? Where did Jesus go? To something they knew. And that was fish. Jesus said, I'm going to bring you fish like you've never seen before. I'm going to bring you so many fish. It's going to just open your mouth and widen your eyes. And what he did is he demonstrated that he cared. We sing that song, that hymn, Does Jesus Care? And the answer is yes. And then Jesus showed that he needed them to do a greater work. And of course that work was a work of the kingdom. And so as we think about this simple, simple lesson, how Jesus picked the apostles, we need to remind ourselves that the Lord helps us to mend broken relationships. You may have a friendship that's been hurt because words were said. You may have a parent-child relationship. That's just not the way it should be. Through the gospel of Jesus, we can see how those things can be mended. Grace and forgiveness and second chances. And, and before we put our hands on our hip, and before we say, well, I tried it, and before we say, you know what, it won't work, nevertheless, Lord, I will. The Lord helps us to set our minds on things above. But making us realize this world isn't it. As nice as this world is, as wonderful as this world is, there's a better world and that's called heaven. And then the Lord helps us to seek first his kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. The most important work we can be engaged in is encouraging one another, lifting up one another, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the work that Jesus wants all of us to be engaged in. And what a wonderful statement, nevertheless, I will. Nevertheless, I will when I'm tired and do not feel like it. Now, just stop there. How many times does that stop us from coming on Sunday morning? I'm tired and I don't feel like it. Some of us would just stay in bed. Why? Because I'm tired and I don't feel like it. Even though the Lord's worthy of being praised, even though the Lord's worthy of being honored, even though the Lord, the Lord has blessed you that week, even though the Lord has forgiven you, I am tired and I don't feel like it. Can you imagine Peter saying that to Jesus? Cast out and you're going to get a lot of faith. 
Lord, I'm tired and I don't feel like it. So guess what would happen? He would stay in that boat with no fish. Nevertheless, I will. And look what happened. Sometimes it's just hard. Sometimes it's hard. Some of us do not have family that is supportive of Jesus. Some of us have people that in our lives are kind of hard against the faith we believe in. And sometimes it's hard being a Christian. But nevertheless, I will. And sometimes that journey is lonely. Sometimes it may feel like I am the only Christian where I work. I'm the only Christian in this community. I'm the only Christian. And sometimes that can be very, very hard. But nevertheless, I will. The fisherman and the carpenter. The disciple and the teacher. The citizen and the king. The sinner and the savior. Now as we end this, we've got to ask just three or four simple questions. Will you be baptized in Jesus Christ for remission of your sins? Nevertheless, I will. Will you put the Lord first in your life? Before all things, Jesus comes first. Nevertheless, I will. Will you strive to be righteous in all that you do? Nevertheless, I will. Will you forgive the person who has hurt you? And they don't deserve it. But nevertheless, I will. Will you take up your cross every day? And follow him. Nevertheless, I will. Statement of trust. Statement of submission. That's what this is all about. Simple lesson. How he picked the apostles. But boy, he changed their lives, didn't he? And that was day one. After that, they would see so many miracles. They would see demons cast out and going to pigs and going to that very sea where they just were. They would see the dead raised. They would later on see the resurrected Savior himself. And they would go into all the world and preach Jesus. They'd be chased down. They'd be imprisoned. They'd be beaten. And all but John would eventually give up their lives because of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, I will. This morning, can you say that? Can you put Jesus first in your life? If we can be of any help to you, won't you come as we stand? And as we say.